Welcome to Soul Talk, soulful conversations exploring who you are, why you're here, and how to live your most authentic life. My name is Coop Blackson, nationally best-selling author of You Are The One, transformational teacher, and your host. I invite you to subscribe to the Soul Talk podcast for weekly inspiration from me, where I will share with you some powerful ideas, thoughts, and practical life wisdom to help you live life more fully, freeing yourself from your past, reclaiming your power, and living your true life's purpose. You can also go to www.coopblackson.com, enter your name and email to download my free two-part video training series and learn the ultimate secrets to happiness and fulfillment. Let's get started with Soul Talk. Welcome, folks. Welcome to another very special episode of the Soul Talk podcast. Uh, We've had some great episodes over the last weeks and months, as you know. Every episode seems to be my favorite. But I have a feeling this one's going to uh, be something magical. Uh, The guest I'm about to introduce to you today is someone I've really, over the last months, uh, come to respect profoundly. Um, His interviews and just some of the things I've heard him say have really given me a lot of perspective on the time we're in and a lot of inspiration during this uncertain time. And as you know, we're going through some challenging and uncertain, unusual times. And so some of his words and things he shared have really helped me navigate some of these moments uh, so that I can you know, have a deeper understanding and really use the time we're in to, to evolve. And so you're in for a treat. Uh, make sure you get a pen and paper so we can take some good notes. I want to pick his brain and share some of his wisdom with you. He's a renowned multidisciplinary physician of internal medicine, endocrinology, hospice care, internationally recognized educator on the microbiome. We're going to get into that as it relates to human health, soul health, food systems, and a regenerative regenerative future. Welcome to Soul Talk, Zach Bush, MD. Dr. Zach, welcome. Oh my gosh, so glad to be with you, Coot, and the whole audience. Uh, thrilled to be part of a human civilization here. It's great to be here. You know, I've listened to a lot of folks over the last months, and as I was saying, uh, so much of what you shared from all the different perspectives, uh, I just felt it was so holistic and, you know, combined the science and spirituality and came from the heart, which I really, really appreciate. So I've been looking forward to this conversation. Lots of questions I want to ask you to help us make sense of this time and also pick your, you know, pick, pick your brain on health and well-being and you know, thriving through this time and where we're going and where you see us going and the opportunities. But I am curious. I've, I've been curious as I've listened to you. What inspired you to go into this field? I'm always curious about people's inspirations, you know, and what, mo- what motivated you to go into the field of medicine and hospice care and like, what was that initial drive? Yeah, I, you know, I, I feel strange talking to somebody who's one of the best motivational speakers on the planet telling you I'm not sure I had a motivation to begin with. <laughs> <laughs> um, the reality is, you know, I longer I live, the more I question the reality of or the the philosophy of free will, because I I just couldn't have put my life together in any kind of volitional, you know, motivated state. I I have gone in such a meandering path because of the doors that shut. And ultimately, I'm so grateful for the doors that slammed shut to, to define my failures, if you will. And I'm a huge believer in that that kind of belief that if you want to double your success, you need to double your failure rate. 
we need to really embrace these opportunities for change and direction. And so when you start to look at you know, where we are as a civilization and with the global lockdown and collapse of you know, global economies and trillions of dollars lost and you know, homelessness on the rise, child abuse on the rise, sex abuse on the rise, like, you just look at this cataclysmic event there's doors slamming on progress all over the place. And thank goodness, because our progress was destroying a planet. And so in the same way, I look at my career and I'm just so grateful for the doors that closed, you know, and I was in academia for 17 years, moving towards, you know, a career as an academic physician and researcher and, you know, educator, and just thought that I was at the pinnacle of my, you know, momentum and was really moving to be some dean of, med school somewhere in the future and that that was the trajectory i had been told was for all of that debt and effort into that educational path and when those doors slammed shut in 2010 and i had changed direction it felt like a complete endpoint. it felt like a disaster on, on a just a momentous scale and in the in retrospect now 10 years later i can tell you that was the very moment Wow. that the harvest began. I, I could have never really stepped into a career of transformation or a, a personal spiritual transformation without those doors slamming. And so I'm just so grateful that the universe has a way of, <laughs> of showing us the unlikely path, showing us the eye of the needle that we've got to walk through to be on purpose. Mm-hmm. And there's no way I could have motiv- motivated myself to leave academia. It was too scary. It was too, too frightening to leave the the marbled halls and, and the, the cushion of, you know, all of these other intellectuals around me reassuring me all the time that I was right. It was scary to dive into an environment where everybody was going to think I was wrong. And, uh, and then to, to realize that, you know, 10 years later, the academicians are often the ones that are most, you know, categorically, parametrically opposed to, to a lot of stuff I, I'm witnessing now. It's just a, a statement of gratitude. I'm so glad I, I've gotten to the position. And that's not to say that I'm somehow reached enlightenment and they're not enlightened. It's more just, it's just a sense of gratitude that I can see the world the way I see it today. And I, yeah. it's more beautiful than anything I saw from the academic perspective. And so yeah. I can say that my career has taken me on a long meandering path towards beauty. And here I am today. Wow. I want to dive into that too. You know, <laughs> We look at the world today, Dr. Zach, and uh, it's intense right now. I mean, you've been talking about it. You've been sharing about it. And I think you came to a place where you could see what's happening in your life from a standpoint, a perspective of it's beautiful. And I think as a, as a, on a planetary level, I think there's a lot of people looking at our world right now and going, this shit ain't beautiful. You know, this lockdowns, this, that, what doesn't feel beautiful for a lot of us in this moment. And so I would love for you to, maybe from your perspective, share, give us some insight, like what is happening on a, okay, there's a virus, okay, COVID-19, we've called it, but maybe on a civilization level, planetary level, can you speak to like, the hell is going on you know because it's not just like there's a virus then there's protest and there's it's like everything's gone haywire at one time and so give us some insight you know uh, i'll try <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just explain everything just just real quick and that's explain everything 
um, you know, I'll give it a shot. You know, I think that, you know, some of the things that come to mind when you're speaking there is, you know, my passion from a hobby standpoint is, is war history. I think there's no better way to look through the experience of being human than looking at the history of war on our planet. The history of war is so fascinating in, in a lot of different ways, but one of which is that at our most cataclysmic destructive states, we can see beauty and I'm intrigued by it. And, and I, I worry for today's moment with the virus and, you know, martial law and all of this stuff happening in, in multiple, you know, industrialized countries around the world simultaneously now when we see martial law happening on this level, my concern is our generation doesn't remember this happening, but it's happened many times. Mm -hmm. uh, if we look at the Vietnam War as kind of, you know, maybe, maybe the, the closest we've come to a large scale war in, in my lifetime's memory. And, you know, I was too young to really be, you know, understanding the loss of 60,000, 68,000 men, American men and all of this in that war. But it obviously just paled in comparison to the situation where we, we had life far, far more destroyed in World War II. You know, you're, you're at 25 million Russians dead. You're at 6 million Germans, 6 million Jews. You know, you're just at these numbers that are just so massive. And we did it at the end of machine guns in World War II, you know, and, and mm. in Vietnam, we did it through, you know, aerial bombings and we did it through, you know, de devastating display of napalm and, you know, Agent Orange and all this. But in World War II, there was just so much, you know, raw, you know, carnage uh, happening. Mm -hmm. you know? And that paled in comparison to World War One. And so, mm -hmm. you know, 100 years ago, we have this you know, war in which, we were losing 25,000 men a day in World wow. War II, those first couple of weeks and months of the war. And so, you know, just France alone would, would I think that they're, you know, uh, the worst day in those first couple of months in France, 28,000 French soldiers would die in a day. And when you read the descriptions of those battles, we see men leaping out of trenches to storm into the first experience of machine gun fire in history we had never had machine guns before world war one at this at this scale and so you have this you know sheet of of raw steel flying through the air to cut them in half and they're charging into that steel of you know steely death voluntarily and they are literally you know a couple hours into the battle having to climb over mountains of their brothers and kinsmen from their nation to just jump into the machine gun fire to be mowed down and die instantly. And they just kept going and they kept doing that. And there is some bizarre, you know, tragic for sure, but bizarre beauty in that human psyche of there's something more important than me. There's something bigger than me. And I'm willing to be mowed down, even though it seems worthless, even though it seems like my life is meaningless at this moment and just being, one more corpse in a pile of, of 28,000 men today, why would people do that? And I think that when we reach these, these thin sheets between a reality that, that start to, to thin out as we reach mm. uh, the physical limits of our, our physical reality, we start to feel something greater than self. We start to be plugged into an energetic reality of a purpose much greater than anything we can imagine. And in the end, when we get hit by the machine gun fire and die, we're transformed. And 
now if we fast forward to today with a cancer epidemic and you know, all of this chronic disease and uh, cancer in our children, and I, I sit by a, a bedside of a, a child who's dying. I've lost many children in my clinic over the years, and it's intense to watch you know, a nine-year-old die of cancer. Uh, they've been through you know, 40 surgeries and rounds of chemotherapy, and I mean, it's just like they've been through war in, in, in medical exam rooms and hospital rooms and in hospital wards and ICUs and in operating rooms, they've been through uh, war. You know, one of my, you know, well, multiple of my patients have gone through, you know, all of these amputations for sarcomas um, before they're six, seven years old, they're starting to get limbs amputated for these tumors. And so it's very much like a world war war scene where we're chopping up limbs to try to save these children from this, invisible death creeping through their bodies kind of mentality. And yet these children that, you know, go down to Texas Children's Hospital, it's a yeah. city built to house these children, uh, you mm. know, skyscraper after skyscraper of, of hospital buildings built to house our, our sick children. Mm. And, and it's almost no different than that World War I battlefield where these children are leaping into these bodies at the soul level knowing their journey, I think. I think that they know yeah. that they are there for purpose. And so what is the child's purpose who jumps into a body who will have severe autism set in at 18 months of age where they go from verbal and you know joyful child within the home to suddenly nonverbal, emotionally overwhelmed, sensory mm. overload, and you know hitting their head against the wall for six hours a day, overwhelmed with emotional you know, grief or, or you know, just confusion and, and this you know, revolt of the mind. Who picks that journey? Who mm. picks the journey of the 18-year-old storming into the machine gun fire? Mm. And so in the end, you know, what I can say is the, the, the biologic side of human life, the sociologic, the socioeconomic side of life has been nothing but sheer brutality. And in it, we see the beauty of souls stepping up to be something greater than the biologic moment, to be a participant mm -hmm. in a march towards, I hope and I expect, a greater connection into consciousness so that our mm. species can transform. And that's what we get to see at the death and dying moment in an ICU. When a patient dies and is resuscitated, the stories they tell us from that other side in those moments, you know, five, 10 minutes dead, the beauty they see on the other side, it, it just eclipses anything they've experienced on this side of the veil. And mm. so you have to take comfort that as our species marches towards its own extinction through our brutal treatment of the planet, it's, it's okay on some level if that's the path we choose to take. And we have a choice right now. We have a choice to, to change directions and avert our extinction or continue the path. And, and within the next you know, 80 to 100 years, see our extinction event. Either way, it's the journey we need. And if, if we need to walk into the machine gun fire of human mm -hmm. behavior to expand, to become, you know, to leave space on this planet with the energy force of 7.8 billion souls today and maybe 9 billion by 2040, that volume of soul energy is maybe necessary for this planet to make its, its leap into some other you know, paradigm, some other literal you know, dimension of function and, and connection to consciousness on the universal level. And, and we're part of that. And we're willing to, to take the bullets as a species. That might be the journey. Or we get to maybe participate on this side. And that gets me excited because I get to once in a while discharge a hospice patient and watch them go on to live a whole other life. Mm. Because at the moment that they were diagnosed with their terminal disease and said, you got three weeks to live, 
they suddenly let go of all their expectations, their old story. They become in the now for the first time in their lives and suddenly find I am. And they find that deep grounding force of I am right now. And they start doing everything differently. And suddenly their biology shifts and their disease goes away. And they go on to live another 20, 30 years. That happens. And I think that that's possible for humanity. We could make that leap, that, that transformational dimensional leap in our consciousness, in our sense of we are here right now. Yes, we have a bloody, awful, destructive history. But mm. right now, if we let go of our story, if we let go of our history and participate in a, in a higher consciousness connectivity moment, is there a possibility we could be discharged from hospice and go on to be a co-creative species? Mm. Things to sit with. What can we, what do you, you talked about the extinction, possible extinction of humanity. And are there any, I mean, you mentioned a few things now, are there any things that we could be doing as a humanity? Are there any things we could be doing individually within ourselves and then collectively to, to turn this ship around? You know, what could we be doing more of that we're not doing, you know, on a whole level, on a multidisciplinary level to, to, I guess, avoid the extinction, you know what I mean? Because if you're saying there is a, the potentiality to avoid, to, to make this shift, what, what do we need to shift as a, as, a, as a humanity, as a society, as a, how do we make this shift? How do we avoid this extinction? Yeah, so that's been my last, you know, 15 years has been doing a deep dive on systems thinking around what went wrong. Like, how did we become such a destructive, consumptive, extractive species? Like, yeah. how, what, what went wrong there? And one of the fundamental things that we can go into in depth that I've, you know, studied in great depth now is, is soil systems in agriculture. And, Please. And so agriculture is this interesting obvious way in which you interact with the planet on a daily basis you know five six times a day you're interacting with some sort of food whether it be a beverage or you're mm -hmm. uh, have a meal or a snack or whatever it is and in each of those moments what you're doing is fueling an ecosystem within you we used to think of it as human food we, we have to lose that concept it's actually you know whatever you put in your mouth is is the fuel for a biodiverse ecosystem within you, these bacteria, fungi, par protozoa, parasites, mm. all of this life within us is what actually creates life within the human being. And when I say life within the human being, bizarrely, we're talking about light. We're talking about sunlight energy. When light hits the surface of the planet, it interacts with green plants or algaes in the, in the ocean. And when the sun hits a, a kelp forest in the ocean or a green plant on land, it goes through this extraordinary transformation from a, an electromagnetic field uh, form of light energy to a carbon structure. And so the whole purpose of mitochondria in the human or on the other side of the spectrum, plastids within the, the plants is to take light energy and convert it to fuel in the form of carbon, which will be carbohydrates and fat. Yeah. And then at the bacterial level in the gut, to then take that carbohydrate and fat, you know, packages and put it into diverse, you know, different variants for the human system to start to absorb. And then once absorbed, it, it feeds the mitochondria, which are the tiny little microbiome within our cells. And the mitochondria then have these very specific enzymes 
acyl-CoA, then to acetyl-CoA, and these different stepwise breakdowns of carbon molecules back into light energy. And so in the end, all of life on the planet is a story of how to transform light energy into a transportable fuel in the form of carbon to turn it back into light energy so that it can mobilize life within a cell. And so our cells run on this light energy manifested by the mitochondria. And we traffic it through fiber optic networks of, of gap junctions that run between ourselves. Uh, and so this energy is pulsing through our bodies and it coordinates a regenerative event that we call life. Uh, a, an infant born you know, just a few minutes ago is, is correcting millions of problems instantaneously. You know, and they are in the, in the womb as well. But this child now exposed to sunlight and the toxins of the air and everything else that's happening has to be doing quadrillions of repairs you know every day and it's doing that by you know powered by this light energy that it's extracting in this case from mom's breast milk hopefully and it's taking that carbon molecule of, of the carbohydrates and fats within the breast milk and turning that into this extraordinary light energy and that light energy is being channeled into a repair system that's really an in it's very similar to an it infrastructure and so the 5g network or the 4g network whatever you're on right now is a transfer of electromagnetic field energy that's then organized into patterns to understand communication, to understand response. And mm -hmm. so you might have a calendar on your phone that's updating all the time to keep you coordinated with all of your staff. If you step away from that communication network and become isolated, you start to fall behind. You can't update your software, you can't update your calendar, you don't know what's, who's who, you don't know where you're supposed to be, and suddenly mm -hmm. the whole system starts dysfunctioning. That same thing is happening on the cellular level. And so we have built a whole system of transportation, energy, information technology that mimics exactly what's been happening at the quantum level in the, in the human body since the origin of life. And so excitingly, I think we're going to reach this threshold of potential where we finally resolve the problem. And the problem was when we decided to engineer these systems outside of nature, when we decided to create a transportation, energy, economic system as well as you know health systems you know police forces and all that outside of the normal metrics and, and design of nature we we created cataclysmic destructive behavior and then we multiplied it by 7.8 billion people's behavior consumer products industry etc and we're sucking the life out of the planet mm. but i want to tell everybody that there's a template right in front of us and so when your question mm. is what do we need to do to resolve all this the answer is we simply need to go into our own nature if we dive into the nature of biology, the templates for infinite amount of energy on the planet, infinite resources, infinite renewables, you know, whether we're talking about food, whether we're talking, you know, hunger is definitely not a problem with energy production on the planet. There, there's plenty of fuel here for billions and billions of more people. The problem, of course, is politics and economics and sociology and all of this stuff. And so biologically, the solutions have always been here. We are the result of those solutions. And we are, in our intelligence, the result of massive effort of biology to create more and more diversity and more and more intelligence within its design and within its you know, uh, orchestration of what we would call knowledge or, or ultimately consciousness. And to do that, we were built from viruses. We, we were literally mm. constructed from viral transform adaptive energy and so the viruses are are not living beings they don't have any fuel source they can't produce fuel they're not alive they're just genetic packages of adaptive information mm -hmm. 
And we now know that over 50% of the human genome, which contains only 20,000 human genes, 50% of those were inserted directly by viruses. And, so, and wow. most of those were RNA viruses, like, like the coronavirus that everybody's been demonizing. Uh, 8% of the human genome is from retroviruses like HIV. And so as we demonize these viruses, we're really threatening the, our own you know, life, our own survival, because we're putting ourselves in opposition to the very thing that built us. So we're we were, built, we were built from viruses. We were literally built by life through the, through the information stream of viruses. And so the, most of the genetic information that comes from us is from single cellular life. We call these bacteriophage. These are, are viruses that, that come out of a bacteria and then can go on to, to pass genetic information you know, throughout the ecosystem at many different levels. So bacteriophage and then the viruses, which are from multicellular organisms, we're, we're getting this abundant message of adaptive, bioadaptive, and, and biodiversification signaling throughout the system. And the greater the stress you put on the planet, the faster we have to put out the adaptive messaging. And mm -hmm. so that's why we've seen 12,800 pandemics since 1976. Listen to that number, 12,800 pandemics since 1976. We have put this level of pressure on this on biology through our chemical you know treatment of soil systems water systems and ultimately air systems we're so toxifying the environment that we have this explosion of genetic information right now we have 10 to the 31 viruses in the air around us that's 10 that's one with 31 zeros after it that's 10 million times more than our stars in the entire universe okay that's billions of galaxies with billions of stars in every galaxy Multiply that by 10 million, and now you have the number of viruses just in the air. And there's another right, right now, right now. And there's 10 to the 31 viruses in the soils beneath our feet. And there's another 10 to the 30 viruses in the ocean water. And so between soil, water, and air, you start to add these things up, and, and we're we just have this extraordinary sea of genetic information that we move within, and our bodies are orchestrated to very carefully pick what genetic information we need from that viral storm, from that huge viral matrix of that massive library of genomic potential, our cells are regulating which genetic information we take up and which ones we do. This is how, you know, in one family, you see somebody get coronavirus and nobody else has coronavirus. How is that even possible? If social distancing really was the problem, then why is it in a cluster of 10 people that only one or two of them get coronavirus. It, mm. it has nothing to do with their physical proximity. It has everything to do with which bodies decided to get this genetic update, which bodies needed to proliferate this, this genetic signal throughout their body. Mm. The ribosomal uh, translation, it's a big, huge protein enzyme that translates RNA or into proteins. Before a virus can ever become any problem for any cell or anything, the, the protein first needs to decide it's needed. And so the RNA ribosome will come in and there's over 96 different proteins that now need to bind that ribosome before it will kick into action. There's 200 proteins that are putting the brakes on. And so you have this, this it's the most complex, complex regulation we've ever seen in the body is that of do we or do we not make viruses? Do we or do we not replicate or absorb this genetic information? So those people getting coronaviruses are the biologies that most need this. Some hmm. of them are so on the brink of physiology that they can't handle the update. 
That's a very, very small number, though. We're looking at mm-hmm. maybe 9,000 people in the, in the United States. What, what, what do you mean by most needed? And I, then I'm going to continue, but just like most needed, like how? Like, just explain that. Because there is so much fear about oh, coronavirus, coronavirus. Oh, my God. The fear is ah, just crazy. And, but now you're saying, wait, wait. The people that get it are the ones that most need it. You, you just break that down. Yeah. It's really- what determines that they most need it? Yeah. And it sounds stupid, but on the surface, I realize when you say that back to me, <laughs> but I, the reality is, is that, uh, we need, uh, we need acute inflammation in the body to do regeneration. And so if we have a fully functional system, that's in full communication, the microbiome is replete, all the communication network is happening biology is really clicking. Then there's no need for acute, you know, inflammatory process to kick in. If we have an accumulation of, of damaged cells that are not repairing themselves right, if we have an accumulation of, of pockets within the, the body that are starting to fail to generate the electrical energy out of the mitochondria and we're starting to get these low metabolic states, whether it be in the liver or the brain or the breast or colon, wherever it is, we start to degenerate. When a virus comes along, one of the real gifts that any virus gives us is the opportunity to trigger inflammatory events. And you want inflammation to happen to induce a regenerative you know, capacity within the body. And so a virus comes along and, it, and those people that are most needing a transformation event will realize, oh my gosh, this protein will trigger my whole inflammatory cascade and get my whole vascular system starting to turn over and, and give me an opportunity to avoid the, the heart attack that's coming down the pipe mm. or you know, transform past the cancer that's, that's brewing in my body. Mm. And so when we get high fever, this is one of the best ways for cells to repair themselves. And also when you get flu or you get coronavirus, the first thing you do is you stop eating because you feel so weak and you're sick and you, and you decline. And so the combination of fasting and fever is the best way to kill cancer in your body. Hmm. And so those bodies that most need a, a healing event to happen are going to call in an inflammatory cascade like this and is going to use the virus for the update. And the virus always has new protein information for the body. And so some of our bodies don't need that new, imp- you know, new information, but some of us are desperately in need of that adaptive capacity. And it's interesting that we know that viruses are being produced by stressed out organisms that are responding to threat of the environment. And as we come to this realization that human life equals planetary high life, or you know, human health equals planetary health, mm-hmm. it's no wonder that planetary stress creates the, the necessary adaptation event to avoid the mm-hmm. extinction possibility. And so what's happening in the pigs in Central Asia, as we pour antibiotics into these pigs, feed them genetically modified corn that's loaded with glyphosate and Roundup antibiotics to kill the microbiome within them, those pigs are in this full-on extinction-level biologic stress, mm. and then we go on to eat them. And we also have to breathe the air from the, their stool, which is you know, now stored in lakes of pig stool in China and, and North Carolina and the United States. And we have, you know, kilometers of, mm-hmm. of pig stool lakes and these are are holding trillions and trillions of bacteria and fungi and the like that are making trillions and trillions of viruses to try to find adaptive escape from the antibiotic pressure mm-hmm. and so it won't be surprising when you find out that the humans that are having the most efficient biology those with complete metabolic collapse with diabetes obesity cardiovascular disease and, and stage kidney disease are the ones that all got life-threatening coronavirus mm. because of the adaption, adaptation they needed. They needed massive leaps forward. 
And we say that people are dying from coronavirus, but the vast majority of those deaths are happening long after coronavirus is already gone. It only is in the bloodstream for three to five days and triggers the initial fever mm. and inflammatory events so that the body can go through its regenerative effort. Mm. And if the regenerative effort is not successful and they end up in the end-stage disease death of the heart attack or the cancer or the stroke or the, the kidney failure, that's not the fault of the virus. The virus came along benignly. It, it's not forcing anything. There's this false mm. belief that viruses like take over the mechanics of the genetics mm. of a cell. That doesn't happen, we know now. Mm. We now know that the innate immune system, our decision whether to make or, you know, an RNA virus you know, adapted to protein synthesis within our bodies is highly regulated again. And so the virus is a benign signal to the planet to say, here's an adaptation option. Mm -hmm. A small percentage of the population will take that up and then work on an, a, a transformative event. If medicine then jumps in and we throw people on respirators and we stop the fever and we throw them on steroids and we reach 88% mortality in New York City hospital ICUs, right. Right. because we, we screwed up the whole whole. At, we blocked the ability for transformation to happen and the person died from their heart attack because we blocked all of the pathways that they were trying to transform through. So, so like I, I was, was going to ask about like, what about New York with, when, when, when things were really crazy in places like New York and Florida, but like New York was what around what May, April, May, June was so intense. Like what happened then? I mean, there was seemed to be some young people going in, like how could, I guess based on what you're saying, how, how could that have been handled? How should that have been handled? Because, and how do you explain that explosion in New York and let's say not in, I don't know, not, I mean, not in Dallas Ohio. or Ohio or <laughs> yeah. Some, yeah, yeah. somewhere. Like kind of yeah. break that down because I think some folks might have questions and, and say, yeah. well, I saw, yeah. you know, Dr. Zach, I, I, saw saw this, I saw people dying and, and they had COVID-19 and you're saying that it's not COVID-19 that, is the reason they died. So just kind of unpack that yeah. for us. Well, let's take a look at Northern Italy first. So Northern Italy was the first, you know, really catastrophic space with, with this current pandemic. Mm -hmm. And so we saw uh, the average age of death in, in Northern Italy was uh, age 80. And the uh, average age of the population in Northern Italy compared to Southern Italy is 10 years older. And uh, Northern Italy at an average age of 46 is 10 years older than the United States and China. And so uh, as the population ages, we're going to see uh, an increased propensity towards the need for one of these inflammatory cascades to do regenerative effort. And those are the ones that are going to be most you know, heavily pharmaceuticalized, certainly in the United States, but also in any Western country. And so they're going to be on statin drugs and ACE inhibitors for their blood pressure. So again, the people that died were elderly with comorbidities of cardiovascular disease, obesity, and end-stage kidney disease. Those two, even most doctors, sound like three different conditions. But all three of those conditions use the same drugs. We put all three of those conditions on a statin drug and an ACE inhibitor, which is a blood pressure medicine. Kidney disease, diabetes, obesity, and cardiovascular disease, all four of those are likely to be on those two drugs. And those two drugs screw up our relationship with coronaviruses. And so what happens when you go on these drugs is you upregulate the ACE2 receptor by which we transport in the, the coronavirus. And so we're upregulating and overwhelming the body with corona if we have pharmaceuticalized these individuals. Furthermore, if we've screwed up their adaptive immunity so they don't understand their relationship to this virus, 
we can further do damage. And we do that by the flu vaccine. And so some nice studies came out of the U.S. military in 2017 showing that if we give flu vaccine the following 12 months, there's an increased risk of coronavirus in those individuals because we've screwed up the adaptive understanding of understanding these respiratory viruses and their role in the lung and the vascular tissue beyond. And so we you know, poison the normal cycles of you know, vascular health through ACE inhibitors, upregulate the ACE2 receptor in the lung, pull all this coronavirus in. And so we've created a, a, an adaptive overwhelm. And then we give all of them flu vaccine because they're elderly. And so with that mech, we set the stage for this crisis. But then on top of that, we have to ask, why were they getting sick? What, what were they presenting with? If they really were presenting with coronavirus, if they were presenting with an infection, we should see fever and elevated white blood cell counts with something called a left shift showing this acute kind of viral exposure. That should be the pattern that we would see. So fever, white blood cell elevation, and a left shift towards these lymphocytes in, in the, in the, in, in, in the uh, blood matrix. Uh, 5,700 patients admitted to New York hospitals diagnosed with COVID-19 were published in JAMA. And in that journal, they demonstrated that the, all of the admission laboratories and, and vital signs were published. And the average temperature was stone cold normal, no fever in the population. The average Mm -hmm. white blood cell count was in the lower normal one third of the, of the bell curve and no left shift. 5,700 patients presenting with hypoxia, loss of oxygen, and ultimately diagnosed with coronavirus in their bloodstream by PCR, which is a flawed diagnostic tool for showing infection. But all it shows is the presence of the virus. It doesn't mean the virus is causing any problem. It doesn't mean it's causing sickness. It just is present. And so you have people presenting with no signs of infection, no fever, no left shift, with hypoxia, with a virus present. So what, how does the biology back up out of that? How do we find this? And then how does it relate to these hot pockets of mortality that we saw? Turns out that Northern Italy is the highest levels of a, a carbon uh, pollution in the atmosphere called PM2.5. Carbon PM2.5 is small carbon particulate that measures 2.5 microns in size. And it, it's expressed in, in micrograms per cubic meter of air. And this is a mandatory monitoring. We have to for population health and everything else, we have to monitor PM 2.5 levels in every city of the world. Mm. And so you can go online and for free, you can see the PM 2.5 in New York City today or Northern Italy or Hubei province. And it turns out that the most toxic space for this every year is Hubei province. So very high PM 2.5 levels in Hubei province, Northern Italy, New York City, Louisiana, four corners of the United States, Los Angeles, San Francisco, any, right. any place that we saw a hot spot of mortality with the virus present was in areas of high PM 2.5. So what's the biology there? It turns out that PM 2.5 has been shown for decades to bind to influenza and coronaviruses. And so <laughs> when it binds, you go from this nice genetic signaling system of the virome spreading this new message of this altered coronavirus out to the world saying, here's a genetic update. If you need it, take it in, replicate it, send it through your system, if you need an inflammatory reaction, do that, transform, here's your update. But now we poison elderly with a pharmaceutical system that puts them in an artificial relationship to the ACE2 receptor, and then we give a high level of PM2.5 carbon particulate to bind a bunch of virus to. So now we have like this smart bomb mm-hmm. of too much genetic information overwhelming the innate immune system or the innate uh, you know, genetic intelligence of the cell. And so we've created the toxicity around coronavirus in the 
the poor virus is sitting at the center of that mess as a completely benign signaling system of genetic information. And we've sandwiched it with PM2.5 and upregulated receptors for absorption. And riding on the back of PM2.5 turns out to be cyanide. Cyanide is one of the most common chemicals that are related to transportation and energy sector air pollution. And right before this whole outbreak in May of 2019, Earth Justice League, uh, filed a, a lawsuit against the U.S. government for excess cyanide in, in, in city centers, including New York, Louisiana, and other cities that it became hotspots just a few months later. How does cyanide poisoning present? It turns out it presents with no fever, no mm -hmm. white blood cell elevation, and it presents with hypoxia due to a loss of the shape of the red blood cells hemoglobin and multi-organ failure. And in the weeks to come, they get micro blood clots and die of, of multi-small vessel disease. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. exactly how everybody died in the ICUs in New York, Northern Italy and everything else. They died of hypoxia. And I believe this is directly due to the cyanide poison that came back on the backside of upregulated ACE2 receptors from pharmaceuticalization. It disrupted innate immune system from the flu vaccine combined with PM 2.5 carrying cyanide into the cell with an abnormal clumping of coronavirus around it. And we got a perfect delivery system for cyanide poisoning globally. Cyanide poisoning causes something called histotoxic hypoxia. Right, you look right. up histotoxic hypoxia, you not only describe the current phenomenon of death due to quote unquote COVID, you describe perfectly death from SARS in 2002 and MERS in 2012. Every coronavirus that has happened has presented with hypoxia not pneumonia and respiratory failure. It is much different than influenza. Mm. Ultimately, what we're dying from is a toxicology event, not an infectious disease. Mm. <laughs> that's, a little, that's a little bit to digest right there. Um, could you say something, simple terms, to the person out there who is, is gripped in fear. They're afraid to, they're just, you know, sitting at home waiting for, let's say, a vaccine. They're, they're afraid to, like, go anywhere, do anything. You know, you know just, they're just gripped in fear. Fear of dying, fear of dying of the coronavirus. Fear, just, just like, what can you say to the person who is, is, is just hijacked in fear? Like, Number one you're a miracle. You are just a biologic, miraculous being that is healing at a rate that you cannot even fathom right now. Mm. As you sit there in your living room in fear, your body is healing billions of cells simultaneously at a rate that just boggles any kind of you know, human mindset. You are healing all the time. Your ability to heal is directly related to your connection with nature. And so if your feet are bare and on the ground, the soil outside, and you're gardening, and you're on the beach, and you're walking through the woods, and you're running with your kids through you know, trail systems, you are a part of Mother Nature's explosive biology of health. Mm. Health is so much more exponentially powerful than disease. Disease is the result of chronic and you know, methodical disruption of those health health matrices you are literally a quantum being right you've got this quantum physics re relationship to gravity to electromagnetic field and you appear somewhere between the gravitational force of the planet 
and the ethereal state of the vacuum space of, of the space that, that Earth cycles within, you are in that space. You are a biologic miracle. There's no way you would have been here without the intention of, of, of nature for you to be here. If viruses were against you, you would have never been here. Your species would have never been here. Mm-hmm. I want to reassure you that biology is 100% for you. The only way that you can really step yourself towards the realization of the, of the event that you might fear is to divorce yourself from that mother nature that built you. If you have got yourself steeped in, in alcohol san, hand sanitizer that's you know, much of it also filled with carcinogens and all of that, and you're wearing a mask that is, is uh, imbued with all of this melt-blown plastic that creates the mesh within a surgical mask, you're ble- breathing nanoparticles of polyethylene into your lung, breaking down your natural defenses against viruses, and you're hiding away in a home without the, the benefit of sunshine to stimulate your immune system to its full potential, you're, you're in the trap. You are literally mm-hmm. sitting in the trap that we call human isolation. A human mm-hmm. isolated from its nature is a devolving system. It is a system in collapse. All you have to do to reverse that paradigm is step out the front door. And so I need you to open up the door. If you, if your municipality requires a mask, for God's sake, don't put on a polyethylene, you know, surgical mask. Put on yeah. a, an organic cotton, you know, bandana, which have been shown to be useless to hold your air in, which is exactly what you want. You don't want mm. to limit your capacity to inter- exchange information with the environment. You want the environment to speak to you right now. Mm. Your hope is in reconnection. Your pathway to a future of biologic thrive is through reconnection to that nature. And so use the minimum amount of barrier. And I would include your clothes in this. You know, if, if your municipality allows nudity, go do that. If not, then, then we're talking bathing suits and get sunshine on your skin right now and barefoot in soil or in grass or fields or pathways through the, through the woods. Get out in nature right now. And immediately, you're going to start turning on your innate immunity. Your innate immune system only understands you. It only understands I am when it sees the environment around it. If it's in isolation, it gets confused over what is the I am space. And it starts to do all kinds of confusing signaling and autoimmune conditions can happen and dysfunction within the innate immune system. Adaptive immune systems can all fail. So I want you to know that the human species mammals as a whole, multicellular organisms as a whole, are the intention of our planet. Our planet has intentioned life on it on some level that we could call God or we could call Mother Nature, we could call whatever you you are comfortable calling it. There is an intention for life on this planet that has succeeded in not just recovering from five previous great extinction events, it always comes back with more resilience, more biodiversity, and more intelligence every time, which is super intriguing. Which means if we do complete this sixth extinction that we're in the midst of engineering, if we complete that over the next 80 years, over the next millions of years, we're going to see more intelligence and more biodiversity than ever before if we follow the track of this planet's previous five. I'm very intrigued by that because it means if we stop behavior now and we align with that mother nature, we could actually see and be witness to in the next decades and centuries an explosion of biodiversity that we've never even expected happening. Not only just some recovery of some previous normal, we could literally see a new normal. And that's what I hope this pandemic does for us. It has put the brakes on human momentum and pathway. And just as I described my career at the beginning, 
a slamming door is the best gift you can have towards finding your path. And so I hope this misinterpretation of the science, the, the misappropriation of public health policy and misappropriation of, you know, emergency relief and all the mistakes we made were just necessary ripples that happen from a door slamming in our face. Mm. And I am so excited by the potential that we can't go back to a previous normal. We need to become a co-creative species in line with our nature, founded and foundationed within that nature, and become that resilient capacity that we all have laced within our, our energetic and biologic capacity. Mm. Beautiful. I want to shift gears in a second. One, one quick question to, to complete. Like, folks are talking about second wave, second wave, you know, should we be concerned? Any thoughts there? Anything you can guide us in terms of, oh, you know, wait, wait, it's not what it's, it's now, you know, moving into the fall, into the winter, into the, yeah, there's a lot of fear about that and curious, you know, like. The so there is no second wave, you know, biologically uh, the virus will cover the planet uh, period. And so the virus will disperse itself you know, symmetrically over the planet. It may be in slightly high, higher concentrations in some areas than others, but overall you're going to find this coronavirus is already in ice caps in places humans have never gone. It's already mm. in the deserts. It's, it's distributed. Mm. The only second wave is the dysfunction of our biology and the, the rise of PM 2.5 carbon, which happens in the third week of November every year. And mm. so we're going to poison our atmosphere again in the third week of November, like we do every year because the, the, of the phenomenon of winter. So as we lose the plant life that covers the northern hemisphere, the amount of carbon that accumulates in the atmosphere is dumbfounding. And I'll show you a video on this. I have an upcoming mm. summit uh, or town hall on, on the virome that I'm doing, I think, next week. So if you want to see you know, videos of this, you can go to my website and look up the virome town hall and, and see that recording. Um, but I'll show you videos of NASA of what's going to happen in November. It happens every single year, and then it explodes mm. over the course of November to March. And what happens is we get massive amounts of carbon dioxide, methane, and, and PM2.5 accumulating in the atmosphere as the soil goes into its quiescent state. As we come out of winter, we, we have you know, recovery start in May, June in the norm, northern hemisphere, and by July, we're out of the woods. And so right now, we're going to see this whole you know, current wave of viral cases is going to disappear by the end of August. And that's going to happen naturally. And so now the virus is everywhere. And in the fall, we're going to see an increase in PM 2.5. And we'll see another wave of elderly people going into the potential for a respiratory virus intake. They're, they're taking it in all the time, but their innate immunity will be different. Mm-hmm. Vitamin D levels be less because of the Northern Hemisphere lack of sun. They're their sedentary state will increase. So they're not going to be functioning as well. So their need for an inflammatory event may increase. So they may go ahead and pick up coronavirus and and manifest an infection and and a fever and the transformative capacity there. But in all of that, you know, it is not literally a second wave. It's not like the virus like disappears and then comes back. Mm. Virus is always here. It's us in, in our waves of immune function as a species and as a planet that is going to express this virus at different levels depending on the season. And so it's not a second wave. It's, it's a homeostasis with the planet. We're, reading, we're reaching a genetic equilibrium with coronavirus over the next six months. Mm-hmm. So by next spring, we're going to see very clearly that things have stabilized. And this has happened with SARS, MERS. Every time it's 18 months. 18 months, everything's come into an equilibrium. 
but it didn't go away. That virus doesn't like disappear. Viruses can be tracked three and a half billion years back in our fossil record. So these mm. viruses don't like go away. We reach an equilibrium. Donald Trump and you know uh, Fauci and all these people have been arguing over herd immunity. Herd immunity isn't even accurate. That's not how we d- deliver equilibrium or, or establish equilibrium with viruses. If, if we were waiting for antibodies to occur to, to, to knock back a virus, we would be dead. Mm. The, the virus occurs and, and, and lasts for three to five days in our bloodstream. That's when, by the way, when we take it in, it's not in our bloodstream. So we absorb it into cells. If our cells decide to replicate it and put it into our bloodstream, then we can detect it. They'll tell you, if you go right now and say, I want antibody testing for coronavirus to see if I had it last year so that I know whether I'm at risk next year, they're going to tell you that if you think you were exposed to coronavirus in the last four to six weeks, it's inaccurate. You've got to wait four to six weeks after infection before the, your antibodies are there. Mm. Well, what made that virus go away if my antibodies aren't even present? Another way of looking at this is in a newborn. A newborn at seven days of age has 10 to the eighth, that's, that's you know, one with eight zeros after it. So you're at, you know, 100 million viruses per gram of stool in that seven day. Wow. Wow. 10 to the eighth viruses per gram of stool. And yet that baby can't make a single antibody yet. In fact, it won't be until six months of age that that baby develops its adaptive immune system that can make antibodies. It's impossible that our front line or even our second, third line of defense against virus or the, or the equilibrium with a virus has anything to do with an antibody. And yet we're being told that we have to wait for a half billion dollar or a half trillion dollar you know, price tag for some vaccine to induce an antibody response to protect us from a virus. That's not how it works. That's mm-hmm. literally not the biology that we know today. The story they're telling you around vaccines and antibodies and protection against viruses yeah. is literally 80 year old science. Huh. It doesn't hold up at all in recent decades. Our science has gone beyond that. And yet the mindset is stuck. And I don't really blame anybody for this. I don't think it's a conspiracy theory. I think the mm. reason why they're stuck 80 years ago is because this is a paradigm shift so dramatic that it takes time for science yeah. to really wrap its head around this thing. Yeah. What happened in, in, in you know, the time of the, the peak of the Greek intellectuals. You look at uh, Pythagoras, you, you know, the Pythagorean theorem, theorem the triangles the, that, you know, founded geometry as we know it today. 2,000 years ago, Pythagoras comes up with all that stuff. And in so doing, mm-hmm. he discovers that the earth is a sphere. Mm-hmm. Right up until that moment, we thought it was flat. Mm-hmm. It was so ridiculous to think that the planet was a round ball because it sure feels flat when you walk or you go look at the horizon. It's a line. It's a flat earth. And, and to find out that it's round, 2,000 years later, we still have a flat earth society that's arguing very strongly that the earth is not a sphere. It took 2,000 years for us to adapt that, and it didn't really catch any traction for 1,600 years. 1,600 years later, Galileo comes along and is, is given a telescope and, and refines the science of the telescope, looks out in the stars, and realizes something unbelievable. Not only is the earth a sphere, it's moving. We thought that all the stars and the universe were cycling Mm. around us and we were stationary because it sure feels like we're stationary. Mm. It was unbelievable. It was so disruptive. The idea that the earth was not at the center of the universe, it challenged religion as much as it did spiritual and kind of spatial orientation Mm -hmm. and science. 
And so religions thought we were the pinnacle of God's creation and, and we had to be at the center of the universe to find out that we're like in some distant, you know, remote suburb of a galaxy with a billion stars and we circulate and we're, and we're cycling around a very average to small star in the scope of, you know, trillions and trillions of stars. It just, it didn't make sense. It took hundreds of years for us to really wrap around. And then we get the, the Hubble telescope and we look into the darkest quadrant of the sky and find a million galaxies within that one little pixel. The deeper we look, the more insignificant we, we become yes. on this thing. Mm. But I think that those two discoveries, the earth is not flat, it's round. Number two, the earth is not stationary. It's in this morass of movement and expansion of the universe. Mm has been dwarfed by this current scientific paradigm shift, which is human health is not at its center human. Mm. That is too radical. So as we went from the telescope to the microscope to genomic sequencers and look deeper and deeper into the fabric of our nature to find out that the human cell is not at the center of human health is a very disruptive, very it's problematic huge. paradigm. And it's so big that it's going to take us some time, even with all of the IT infrastructure and the internet, and it's going to take us some time. And so the fact that they're 80 years behind with the science that Fauci and all these guys are espousing as if they know, those guys aren't scientists, by the way, the, you know, the way that academia works is that it's probably been decades since those guys ever set foot in a lab. They, they are practicing an archaic belief system that was taught to them by people who literally learned the science of 80 years. And so they're second generation of 80-year-old science, and they haven't stepped into one of these new labs to realize, oh, my God, we were all wrong. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, right now, it's scientists that are between the ages of 22 and 30 right now that are cutting this new paradigm wow. out of this matrix, and they have no position in academia, let alone governments and public mm -hmm. health environments, to get this information out there. When I was doing my chemotherapy research, I was told on, on like two weeks into my, my big breakthrough that I was making in, in chemotherapy around vitamin A compounds and all this, I was so excited. You, know, you can only imagine what it feels like you know, when, you, when you see something that no humans witnessed before. It's like, this is like a total goosebump moment. And so I'm in my first total goosebump moment of, oh my God, I'm seeing something nobody's ever seen before and this is incredible and this is going to be just revolutionary. And I went in, showed my, my lab director all this stuff and he's like, you know, and I'm thinking, you know, I, I'm going to take this over to my colleagues up the hallway and we're going to change cancer management tomorrow. And he laughed and he's like, Zach, best case scenario is what you just discovered is going to take 20 years before it even begins to infiltrate the wow. clinical behavior of, the, of your colleagues that live, you know, right down the hallway here. That was mind blowing to me. I was like, but they, I talk to them every day. I show them my PowerPoints. Like, how can I not change their behavior? And the answer is it's slow. And so when you take, you know, such a catastrophic leap forward in paradigm shifts of science like this, it's not a conspiracy theory. Nobody's really trying to kill you. How Nobody's long do you, trying to leave, do you leave think this shift, because I mean, this, this is a huge paradigm shift. And I'm curious, like, how long will it take? 25, 30 years? I mean, for, it's, it's like a huge shift that you're proposing, which, which I feel it. I mean, I feel it. So. Is it like a 25, 30, 40 year shift that's going to happen? I mean, obviously, a lot of events, the thing, the event that's happening now is bringing stuff to the surface. Is it a generation, 15 years, 10 years? Hmm. No, those are all very optimistic numbers. I, I think it's probably in, in more on the scale of hundreds to thousands of years. Um, 
before humans can handle this information uh, as a whole, you know, as a, as, as a, for society to really adopt this transformed state where we change consumer product industry, change medicine, change healthcare policy, change government structures, change the economics, change transportation, energy, energy. So that's going to take hundreds of thousands of years, uh, which means we go extinct, you know, long before that transformation, unless it doesn't take total adoption to create the parametric change that we need. And that's what I'm hoping for is I hope for the hundredth monkey phenomenon to be true that if we could get just 4% or 6% of the population to adopt this new realization, that's plenty of people. 4% of, of 7.8 billion is 300 million. 300 million people asking the right questions to discover the next answers is plenty to create the change we need to see. So the paradigm shift will take a long time, but the transformation from this science could take a very short amount of time. And this is where my faith is in these researchers, scientists, and individuals between the ages of 20 and 30. If you are between those ages and you're doing anything, if you're growing corn in a field, if you're in a science lab, if you're treating patients, you are the generation that has to make this transformation for us. Mm -hmm. And all of the rest of us charging ahead of you, our responsibility is create enough space to, to just for you to breathe for a moment and not believe the pr previous paradigm. You need a moment to look around you and say, does any of that old science make sense? You just need a moment because it'll be very dumbfoundingly obvious to you what, what is true and what is not if you get a moment to breathe. But the mm -hmm. modern society and our education system has become expert at not giving you a moment to breathe. It's trying to keep mm -hmm. you so distracted by the next bit of information for you to memorize that you're not thinking critically. You're not thinking creatively. And so if there's anything I do every day, it's to create space through my words. I think my words are useless because they're, they're not accurate yet. Uh, the science is brand new. The paradigm shift is right beneath our feet. It's happening. Am I right across the board? No, I, I'm, I'm just scratching the surface of, of anything you would call right or truth. But I hope that my words is creating a little space for everybody who's in, in, in that transformative generation to say, wait, hold on. I just thought of something. That's what I want. I want you to think of something today. And I don't want you to reiterate anything of anybody else's ideas. I want you to witness nature today and, and be witness to something it does and then follow that path. Mm. What you're going to see is extraordinarily beautiful. There, there's nothing more beautiful than a cancer cell growing under a microscope. It's extraordinary. It's, it's this gorgeous infrastructure and the symphony of, of explosive you know, uh, urgency for life. Urgency for life is what a cancer cell is doing. It's the most damaged, vulnerable cell in the body. And it's in this most urgent state, knowing that all life will disappear if it doesn't stop trying to replicate because it can't repair itself anymore. All it has is replication. And so it's mobilizing all attention on replication. Mm. You, as, a, as an American citizen today, are functioning as a cancer cell. You are in a constant urgency, knowing that we're just hanging on by our, the, the grit of our teeth, by the skin of our ass. We're holding on to our empire, to our nation, to our technology, to our march forward, to our children's health, to our own health. We're just barely holding on to it. So we have this urgency within us. If we can become mindful of for a moment within that urgency, the amount of change we can create, the amount of transformative energy that's pent up within the human species right now could, could flash change everything in a second and it won't matter anymore 
if it takes another thousand years for Harvard to take, mm-hmm. you know, accept that that human is not at the center of biology, it, it's okay if it takes thousand as long as we made the transformative event to say we are here right now. The history was a long and winding path through through a, a looking through the, the glass darkly is one of my favorite passages of scriptures out there. Uh, it, it describes, I think it's in Ecclesiastes there, that we're looking through the glass darkly, uh, which is a description of like stained glass at the time, you know, a couple thousand years ago when that was written. The idea that there's this dark stained glass that's between us and reality. And we're trying to figure out what reality is through this dark glass. When we go into the death moment and we pass that veil, we see it all crystal clear. And, and when we resuscitate, we come back to clarity and say, oh my gosh, I thought I was a failure. I thought I was totally screwed up. I, I'm totally accepted. I'm on my path. I'm on purpose. Why did you bring me back to this place? I'm ready to move on, blah, blah, blah. That, that reality of the glass darkly is the march. And so we don't need to look at a Dr. Fauci or, you know, a, a, you know, I don't care who you're demonizing right now. That person you're demonizing is looking through a glass darkly, probably with some sort of altruism in their heart. Even if you hate the Gates Foundation and think they're trying to, you know, control population, which they are, it's one of their mandates is to reduce human population explosion because they can't imagine a human species that's not a, not, destructive and consumptive let's leap past that let's not demonize them for the last they're just holding on like a cancer cell saying the only thing we can do is is diminish our population because we can't imagine a transformed species right right what if we just stop demonizing each other and realize we're all looking through the glass darkly unless we could pop our heads above the stained glass and realize we can just stand up and we can look over and it was nothing more, there was no wall between us and consciousness. There was no wall between us and mother nature. We were simply sitting in the pew and we couldn't see past the next pew. And so we just thought there was, you know, this, this thing here, we need to stand up from our socio political religious belief system, stand up for a moment and realize that we are infinite souls here on purpose connected or with the opportunity for connection. And in so connecting, we will answer so many questions that we can't even imagine formulating right now through that. And we see this happen reassuringly in bacteria and fungi. Bacteria and fungi within the microbiome are capable of something called quorum sensing. They can elicit hyperintelligence when there's enough population connected. When the mycelial bed of the root system of, of all of the 5 million species of fungi connect, we see hyperintelligence happen on the planet. We see biologic adaptation, energy systems, transformative genomics come out of that hyperintelligence of a connected nature. So there is a communi- like a communication hap- happening. That's right. Through the microbiome, constantly. In can fact, you just ex- can you just explain and just I'm wanting to continue because I was actually about to ask you about how does a microbiome fit into all of this? Uh, what is the microbiome? Just so people understand, and I want to kind of just share about this interconnective communication network and how this happens. I'm so glad you asked that because I, I didn't define that early on. And th- there's a tendency for us to think that viruses are part of the microbiome. And I want to make it clear that, that is a, that's also old, uh, archaic belief uh-huh. system. Viruses are not living life forms. Uh, and if you look up the words micro and biome, 
it means small living organisms. And so it, it's, it's completely inappropriate to put a taxonomy of viruses within the microbiome. So that's something that almost every hospital, every university still makes a mistake on, I think, is trying to plunk the viruses somehow into the microbiome. Microbiome, the word micro is small, the word biome meaning living organisms, describes a massive ecosystem of bacteria, protozoa, parasites, fungi, and the like. And the march of that biology and its biodiversification and you know, uh, development on this planet took billions of years. It's a truly extraordinary story of patience in the design of nature. And so uh, Earth was around for billions of years before we see the emergence of, of single-celled life. But some you know, four billion years ago, we start to develop this morass of, of, of kind of stew of, of proteins and nutrients that allow for the first single-celled organisms start to, to, to organize themselves. And they're organizing themselves uh, in order to do work on the planet, which I think is fascinating. Their whole purpose is to do work, to, again, become part of an energy system greater than themselves. And so the archaea were the most ancient of bacteria, and they come on the scene about three and a half billion years ago. And the archaea then give forth to more complex bacterial uh, morphology and mechanisms of DNA to RNA translation and protein synthesis. And so the archaea are actually, you know, interestingly, very similar to humans in, in the way in which they do genomic uh, transcription and translation. Bacteria are actually quite a bit different than archaea and human biology in this way. So the archaea come along and, and then the bacteria come along. And the bacteria are really good at doing energy production at, at a more complex level than the archaea. And somewhere along the line, an archaea absorbs a methane-producing bacteria and suddenly creates a, a dual synergy of function. And that becomes the first plant plastid. And the plastids are the early form of mitochondria in that they could take carbon energy and turn it back into electrical energy more efficiently than ever before. And so suddenly we got the, the matrix for more complex life. So we created protozoa, which are, are the first kind of complex single cellular organisms that exceed the, the structure of bacteria. The protozoa is really the template for a multicellular organism. Mm -hmm. And so the protozoa come out. And the most famous protozoa you've probably heard of it as public is, is malaria. And so malaria mm -hmm. is this little protozoa that lives in the bloodstream of in, endemic in different regions of the world. And like the viruses, it's kind of endemic. Most people have it and, and doesn't really cause problems. But for some people, you get super sick with malaria, mm -hmm. introduced to the bloodstream in too large of a stent. You don't have the adaptive immunity or whatever to deal with the protozoa. And so you develop you know, malaria as an acute illness, and then you get over that a couple of weeks later. Or for some people, they'll die from it. And so uh, this protozoa is just one of you know, hundreds of thousands of species of protozoa present now in our ecosystems. And so the protozoa then lead to this extraordinary leap about one and a half billion years ago of the fungi. And the fungi become the first really coordinated multicellular macro life forms. And the mycelial networks of fungi, we now know can cover kilometers of space and do intelligent design within those kilometers of space to take resources, mineral resources, protein resources, and translate and transfer them over you know, half a kilometer away to a place that needs them. The mycelium will allow for symbiotic relationships between pine trees and beech trees, for example. Uh, beech trees grow in soil that they can't survive in. That's where they like to grow because they're actually not fed by the soil. They're fed by the mycelial structure that's absorbing nutrients from the nearby pine trees that produce the nutrients the beech tree needs. None of that intelligence and complexity could have been present without a communication network. And so the way in which the microbiome 
really began its foothold of, of global, you know, quantum physics communication network is through the mycelial bed. And the mycelium functioning similar again to fiber optics is moving light energy and information through electron flow through these pathways within soil systems. And they have tubular systems for distribution of nutrients and all of that to follow the information stream. And so this, this mycelial network created the brain of the planet. And interestingly, you know, bacteria have to absorb nutrients and then break them down to produce energy. The, the fungi never saw the need to absorb nutrients instead and, and break them down and metabolize them into fuel. Instead, they, they function as the, digest, the, the, the organism that runs the planet. They, they actually exude digestive enzymes into the environment around them and then absorb the biologic nutrients from that environment. And so they, they, they turn the entire planet into their stomach and intestinal system, which I think is really interesting. And so I think the most intelligent you know, life force on the planet in some ways that we have right now is the mycelium and the fungal kingdom of you know, three and a half to five million species of mm -hmm. fungi. That's really hard to wrap your mind. That's species diversity, three and a half million. That's just a huge number. Huge. And so... And if you look at the number of genes within that fungal community, you're at, already we're at 125 trillion and still counting. 125 g trillion genes compared to the 20,000 that are in the human genome. We are a pixel of genetic information yes. that swims in a stew of viruses that are genetic updates from that massive ecosystem of genetic information within the fungi, bacteria, protozoa, and the like. And so the microbiome is so much more vast than any human journey. To put into perspective the human genome of 20,000 genes, uh, a fruit fly has 13,000 genes. Mm. A flea has 30,000 genes. You sit somewhere between a flea and a fruit fly in genetic complexity. And so on some level, we need to write ourselves a massive permission slip. Okay, we're destroying the planet. We're, we're acting selfishly. We're like you know the toddlers on the planet. We're just like throwing everything everywhere. We don't care about our own waste system. We, we don't care about who's feeding us. We're just like in it for ourselves. We're just pure ego. Well, we're slightly more complex than a fruit fly. And, and, yet, and we've been imbued with this like capacity for consciousness that the fruit fly perhaps hasn't been gifted. And that toddler with access to the consciousness developed a superiority complex. And so we have marched around the planet with this attitude of a manifest destiny that we are the yeah. most complex, most highest intelligent thing that's ever been here. So we can, we can micromanage everything. We can extract it for our own good because we are human. And mm -hmm. so we named ourselves sapiens twice. We're homo sapiens sapiens. Mm -hmm. That means wisdom, wisdom. Mm -hmm. I don't even know if it's wise to say wisdom twice in a row. That seems pretty stupid. So how did we become homo sapiens sapiens? Because we were so caught up in our own wisdom, our own narcissism, because we had access to consciousness. But should mm -hmm. we, but isn't that ultimately the gift? And isn't that ultimately the pathway past our current iteration of Homo sapiens? Our next iteration is to become in line with a biology that has imbued us with adaptive capacity, that is telling us a story that life only survives and, and evolves if biodiversity is allowed. And so this movement where we see suddenly Black Lives Matter jump out, mm -hmm. of, the, uh, out of the matrix is exactly the messaging that, that the, the consciousness needs. Now the movement is a Marxist organization and all this stuff. And I always get all this flack whenever I say Black Lives Matter from on my social media and everything else. Everybody who's listening who wants to go on my social media and give me flack, I'm not talking about Marxism. I'm talking mm -hmm. about the mm -hmm. idea mm -hmm. that biodiversity within Bio the human is the pathway 
that nature mm-hmm. is screaming at us is Imagine. necessary to survive. Imagine. And so w- when we say lives matter, we need to realize that we have wiped out indigenous peoples to, this, to the tune of 97% over a few hundred years. Mm. We have wiped out 97% of indigenous peoples on the planet at the same rate, it turns out, as soil. 97% of the, the arable soils on the planet have been depleted or severely depleted over the same 300 years. Mm. So our treatment of the indigenous peoples and the soils was identical. We are marching towards a monotony of crops, Right. probiotic species in our gut. Mm. You know, everything is mono. Everything is, is, a, is a reductionist behavior. Mm. You know, uh, we need Democrats and Republicans. What a reductionist concept. Obviously, the founding fathers saw no role for parties. They saw the opportunity for checks and balances and biologics. Mm. Their design of this nation was a biologic mimicry. Their biomimicry of our founding documents, the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, these were documents based on natural observation. Remember, all of those founding fathers were, for the most part, farmers. They spent their days looking at nature, and they designed a government based on what they saw in nature, a system of checks and balances that kept an ecosystem within an adaptive capacity to change over thousands of years' times and remain resilient and transform through the challenges that it would hit. Mm-hmm. When we step away from the Constitution, when we step away from the Declaration of Independence, and as we see the collapse of the empire result, it's because we've stepped away from the biomimicry that was written into the details of those documents. It's a lot to digest, Dr. Zach. It's a lot to digest. <laughs> wow. Biodiversity, microbiome. How do we create a healthy microbiome? Ah, I'm glad you asked that. Uh, we, you know, we dumbed down that, that process to probiotics over the last 30 years. Yes. So yeah. we've, we've created a $47 billion industry now selling probiotics, which are a monoculture of bacteria. Mm-hmm. And so uh, your typical bacterial uh, uh, probiotic has three species or maybe seven species. Now there's like these spore probiotics in the market so that there's a few species of fungi. But imagine a few species of fungi in the context of a natural system of 5 million species of fungi. Imagine Mm. three species of bacteria within a natural ecosystem of 30,000 species of bacteria. Mm. What happens when you start taking probiotics, whether they be spore-based or bacterial-based, is you're creating a monoculture just as we did in the United States and the global agricultural system over the same 30 years. We went and tore up all of the biodiversity of all the grasslands around the world and we planted corn, soybean, and alfalfa, and wheat, you know. And so we took three or four species and replaced thousands of species. We did the same thing with probiotics at the same time. And the result is a very dumbed-down capacity. So how do we recover? A great study was, well, two studies back-to-back were done, uh, both published in the journal Cell, which is uh, one of the most, you know, revered, peer-reviewed science journals in in the uh, archives. Uh, if you look up September 2018 cell probiotics, both of those articles will pop up. So cell 2018, September uh, probiotics. And the first study was done in rodents, the second one done in humans. And the human study had to be designed much longer because the results of the, the rodent study were so terrifying. What we held at that time, even when I was marching around the planet lecturing on the microbiome at this time, 2018, I was still saying, well, maybe it makes sense to take a probiotic, even though it's, you know, a far-fledged from a normal, you know, healthy microbiome, maybe it makes sense that right after an antibiotic. 
because we know an antibody can collapse by 80% your biodiversity within just two weeks. Wow. So they went to answer that. And here I am, you know, microbiome expert recommending probiotics for two to four weeks after an antibiotic. And then the study hits. And what they did was they take rodents and put them on antibiotics for two weeks, show the collapse of the microbiome, 80% loss of biodiversity. And then they randomized them to three groups, which had never been done before in, in, in microbiome studies. The first one they, they randomized to fecal transplants. They had collected stool from those mice and pelletized mm-hmm. that, put it in capsules and fed it back to the, the mice after antibiotics. And they recovered within 20 days. Very rapid recovery of the microbiome and the ecosystem. Then there was a, a probiotic arm, and the probiotic arm started recovering at the same rate in the first 24 hours as the, as the, the group with fecal transplant. It looked great. And then within two days, it's starting to, to plateau. Within three, four, five days, it has suppressed the microbiome back down as severely as the, pro, as the antibiotic had and holds it there for the whole rest of the study, mm-hmm. never allowing biodiversity to return to the gut. Fortunately, there was a placebo arm that showed the same rate of recovery in that first 24 hours as the probiotic and the the fecal transplant and continued to improve. So with nothing done Mm -hmm. but a sugar pill, those mice recovered total microbiome by 30 days. In the human study, they decided, well, must, you know, recover longer. Maybe we run it for more than a 50-day trial. So they went to to six-month study in the humans. At six months, the probiotic arm still had not recovered whereas the, the placebo arm had recovered in 30 days and the, the, the uh, fecal transplant had recovered in, in 15 days. And so in the end, we need to replace a $47 billion industry of probiotics with nothing, <laughs> okay? We need to let people get back outside. How do you create a healthy microbiome is the opposite of a probiotic. Don't show uh-huh. yourself three species of bacteria sit outside all day long. And I apologize for the background noise you've heard throughout this great recording, but I'm sitting outside because it's the only place I can tolerate doing eight hours a day of podcasting because I have mm. to be breathing that microbiome all day long. And so the mm. ocean breeze coming off of here and I'm breathing that all day long. I am literally with the motion of earth across my, my nasal passages and mm. across my respiratory tree of my lungs, I am repopulating my body by simply being outside. And so the message that we started a couple of years ago on, on Instagram, it's a fun one to follow because the images are so beautiful. Uh, it's hashtag breathe your biome with the message that if you go out and breathe real air and wild ecosystems, you're going to repopulate. You're going to repopulate with bacteria, fungi, the, the amount of spores in the air uh, that are going to reseed that three and a half million species of, of fungi in your body are, are, are just amazing. And then 10 to the 31 viruses, you need that intelligent upgrade of the genomics. You need the option of constant genomic interaction. You need to very quickly ask your government to reevaluate any science that would back their, their messaging of, of social distancing because the science is not there. The Lancet popu- you know, studied 50 countries on this pandemic to show there is no benefit to social distancing or mask wearing. We do not change the trajectory of, of disease in those populations because neither of those conditions are, have anything to do with innate immunity. And neither of those conditions, social isolation or mass, have anything to do with the way in which you interact with viruses. Instead, the science has shown us that if you get more than seven hugs a day, your chance of getting an, a, an influenza syndrome goes down by 35%. You said science has shown. This isn't just like... That is a scientific study showing that the more hugs you get in a day, the better your innate immune system works. You, do you know where the scientific study was, just so we can put it out? Sure, just, yeah, I'll, I'll send it to you so you can okay. post it on your website. We'll, we'll post it up. 
Okay, seven hugs a day. What else? Is there anything? <laughs> seven hugs a day, and then uh, breathe the biome, and then get the sun on your skin. Uh, so the sun is a massive induction of, of steroid hormone. Um, so just like testosterone and you know uh, prednisone, these, these anabolic steroids that your body produces, vitamin D is one of those. Uh, and it produces it from the interaction of skin and sun, which is just so beautiful. You are a biophotonic being just like the plant. And you cannot uh, induce an innate immune system intelligence until you're in the sunshine. The interaction of, of vitamin D on T cells and B cells and this incredible innate immunity uh, is just beautiful. It, it regulates over 2,000 genes. And so uh, when you step out in the sun, breathing real air, get on a trail, get out in nature, you are doing yourself not just a favor of, of the psyche, because certainly you will psychologically be better at the end of the day after being in the sunshine and out in nature, but biologically you have transformed. You are more wow. intelligent at the end of that day. And it only takes minutes to hours to get that level of upgrade. Wow. You need that update. You need the biologic upgrade every time. And, and you have the opportunity to do that in the next few minutes. So get outside, wow. breathe the air, get in Amazing. some sunshine, change the body you have today. Amazing. Dr. Zach, I feel like we could uh, talk forever. And uh, you said a lot, a lot of things to digest, a lot of things to integrate, uh, a lot of things to take to heart. Um, final question, and you can answer however you want. You've shared a lot. I would love for you to... If you were just to look at your life as a whole, um, everything you've learned, successes, failures, ups and downs, um, relationships, heartbreak, you know, fatherhood. Um, if you were to think of the three most important lessons that you feel you've learned in your lifetime, that if you could only pass these three things on to the next generation of children that would evolve their consciousness the most, what, what would the three most important things you would want next generation listening to know final question most important thing is you are here right now you literally picked the tipping point of human history we've been here for 200,000 years and you showed up right now with maybe 60 years left you showed up right now which means you are part of the solution I don't think you came here to be part of the collapse of, of civilization and a planet I think you came here to be a transformative power and so all of the angst that you feel right now, all of the frustration, the anger, the hopelessness that you might feel from moment to moment, you can let go of all of that because you, I want you to know that that is righteous emotion. That is righteous you know, and true reaction to the world that we have handed you. You should be pissed. You should be hopeless. You should but that's the old paradigm. And so give yourself a couple of breaths to realize that you are right now and you picked right now. And the whole history of mankind and the billions of years before us is irrelevant to the next moment. If the second most important thing to tell you is let go of the story. Everything I've told you so far is a story of how we got here. And we're gonna keep on that path if you hold on to the story. You need to let go of all of the paradigms and belief systems and infrastructure that we've put into place before you. And you need to reimagine it. And you need to reimagine it in the context of your meditation on a leaf or the ripples across a pond in a high mountain lake. I want you to go and look into nature deeply, observe her beauty and mimic that. And you will create a beautiful technology 
whether it be an education system, whether it be a transportation industry, an information technology, you will create something beautiful and far more true, far more aligned with a, a, a biologic capacity for future than anything we've created before. Look into man's past and you will find dead ends. Look into nature and you'll find all of the doors open. You're going to find a nature that is inviting you into the most co-creative and beautiful path that you could possibly follow. If you feel stuck in the job you're in, if you feel stuck in the university you're in, get out. Take a semester off. If I hadn't taken a year off from college, I would have been, I'm probably be a robotics engineer somewhere today. That's what I thought I was going to do. I took a year off and I went to the Philippines with a group of international midwives my aunt invited me to and birthed babies. Mm -hmm. You cannot imagine the miracle that it is to see again and again life pulled from a woman's abdomen. A woman is a portal for souls to leap through into a particle state of being human. Mm. What is that? I don't know. It's too miraculous to wrap our heads around. Witness a baby born and mm. tell me that you don't have hope for your future. Mm. If you can do that miraculous leap out of your mother's womb at this moment of great need for transformation and creative thought, I just can't even put words to the opportunity you have. Number three is that opportunity. Number one is, is again, you are here. You showed up at this moment, at the most important moment. Number two, let go of the story. And number three, the opportunity has never been so big because there's never been 7.8 billion souls joining you. You have the opportunity to do quorum sensing. You have the opportunity to connect to as many humans as possible to do something extraordinary. That is where our future lies, is with you, not just you, but your connection to 7.8 billion other yous. And it's through that greater I am experience where we all become present that we will transform that future. We will create the future we want to see for the generations to follow us. Amazing. Folks, you heard it. Three key wisdoms from Dr. Zach Bush, MD. Uh, Dr. Zach, thank you for your time. Thank you for your generosity. I am just blessed that we have this opportunity to connect and share. I can't wait for everyone to listen to this interview. And I'm really glad and blessed that you are alive on the planet at this time, sharing your wisdom uh, with us all. And what's the best way, you know, and people can find out about your work and best website. I also know you have an amazing product, Ion Biome, which we'll put a link, you know, uh, in the show notes as well. By the way, I've been taking Ion Biome for four months and uh, feeling great. Feeling awesome. great. Yeah. Subtle, but feeling great. So what's, what's the best website? And uh, if there's yeah. anything you want to say about Ion Biome. Education uh, website, ZachBushMD.com. Um, I've just started doing these uh, town halls for the, the global community uh, for free. And I'm just raising money by donation through those town halls because um, I think that uh, the, this cutting-edge paradigm-shifting science needs to be free. The people that cannot afford yeah. uh, to go beyond the paywalls of all of the, the master classes and everything else that are being offered today, um, it, it's not fast enough. And so I feel a need to do it for free so there's no paywalls keeping the people that are most in need of this information from it. So if you can uh, donate to that effort, uh, Zach Bush MD, uh, jump on the town halls and be part of that mission the biome is coming up uh, shortly so 
uh, you know, jump on there and watch the Virome. It's an hour and 20 minute deep dive into the science that I, we touched on today. Um, and so that's the education environment. Uh, nonprofit is farmersfootprint.us. Uh, this is where we are, are bringing awareness and education and infrastructure change to the farming industry to make uh, really fast paradigm shifting leaps towards a regenerative agriculture and food system to prevent the collapse of human health through that pathway. And uh, ionbiome.com gets you to uh, all of the products that we've been making from fossil soils. And the reason why this is interesting is that uh, the soils that we draw this carbon uh, matrix, this communication network from bacteria and fungi is 60 million years old, which predates our previous uh, fifth extinction, right? That wiped out the dinosaurs 55 million years ago. And so uh, when Coot says he's been on it for four months, I get a little goosebump moment because no human previous to, to this moment has seen soil intelligence of that level. Uh, we had lost the soil system uh, that led to that great extinction uh, by an asteroid that hit. And the, the earth has never recovered that level of soil uh, complexity and, and the plant life that uh, emerged to support the dinosaurs to their biologic capacity have never returned. And so we see a soil intelligence on the planet 16 million years ago that has never been rivaled. And so when you take your first few sips of that, you may not notice much. But at the biologic level, you're reaching a, a state of connectivity that no human has ever seen before. Mm. And so I'm just so intrigued by the journey that we've had over the last seven years with this product line, knowing that humans are t tapping into the intelligence of nature, which is what ION stands for. And so the acronym ION has become our, our sounding drum of nature is about to express itself fully in humans. And this communication network from the microbiome is your beginning journey of that, that fellowship. And so ionbiome.com will get you a lot more of that science, the peer-reviewed science, as well as the white papers and all of that around that science is really my passion. Take the product, don't take the product, I'm not too concerned, but take the science of it and yeah. change the way you live your life and reconnect to Mother Nature through that. Uh, so that'll get you started with all of our projects. Uh, lots more to share, but that would take another hour, so we'll, we'll cut it short there. Well, we'd love to have you back for sure. Anytime you want to come back to Soul Talk, just say the word. We'll bring you back. We'll dive deeper. I felt like we could go for another three, four hours. Um, thank you for your generosity again and your sharing. Folks, you heard it. We'll put uh, all of the links, uh, Dr. Zach Bush, in the show notes, www.zachbushmd.com, the main website. <clears throat> Check out I Am Biome, Farmer's Footprint. Uh, I'll be on the town hall myself. Um, folks, I think this was a really important interview. And so do me a favor. Share this with everyone you know. Uh, post on your social media, subscribe, download. I really feel that during the times we're going through, everyone needs to hear what uh, Dr. Zach has been sharing. Uh, and the message is profound for the times we're living in right now. Send me an email, coopblackson at coopblackson.com. Let me know your key takeaways from today's episode. I love you lots, everyone. Big hugs, Dr. Zach. Thank you so much. Everybody, catch you next week on Soul Talk. Blessings. If you've enjoyed this episode of Soul Talk, please do share the podcast with all of your friends. Let everyone know and make sure you download Soul Talk today. I'm looking forward to next week where I'll get to share more inspiration with you. Meanwhile, follow me on Facebook, Instagram, or social media. You can find out more about my work at www.coopblackson.com. If you feel ready to take your life to the next level, join me at my exclusive event in Bali, www.boundlessblissbali.com, where you can find out more and apply 
Also, make sure to remember to download my free two-part video training series and learn the ultimate secrets to happiness and fulfillment at coopblackson.com. Sending you all big hugs and love now.